Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks to all of our team human supporters who get the ad-free version of the show, as well as access to our Discord, monthly salons, and live events. Until the end of the summer, you can still get a full Team Human membership for two bucks a month, and you can keep that rate as an original charter member of the team for as long as this show is happening. After September 1st, the lowest monthly rate for new team members will be five bucks a month. Thanks for your support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a chance for people to assert the primacy of the material world, local identity, feet on the ground, and machines that can be simply unplugged if they get naughty. Be not afraid, be clever, and be kind. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, scientist, science fiction author, and futurist David Brin. One of the great tragedies of our time is that our citizens don't stop and realize that for all of our faults, we are so vastly beautiful. David will be showing us how granting AI's individuality, we can begin holding them accountable for their actions. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Well, hey... I had a really hard couple of weeks. I kind of hinted at it in a newsletter. I said, this has been a challenging week. Just a little aside. And like 20 people emailed back, what's wrong? Are you okay? Um, it's weird. It was, it was partly, you know, financial stuff, the, the, the writer strike and a collapse of a bunch of the uh, 
kind of fellowships and nonprofits I've been working with kind of all happened at once. So, you know, uh, supporting myself just on the on the teaching salary is actually a little tricky, um, but <laughs> I'll have to figure that out. But that happened and it was kind of disappointing to watch uh, a lot of the things I'm involved in pivot or collapse or uh, uh, have other kinds of problems. And it's really hard to see uh, so many projects I was working on with, with writers and actors and other people um, have to, you know, be uh, stalled for the moment and, and stalled in a way that makes me suspect that uh, the film industry may have really wanted this strike to happen. I feel like that Netflix and Amazon and everyone, they just overinvested. They did crazy deals, almost like, you know, uh, like New York Mets style deals where they overpay producers, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars for these exclusive contracts. And I think they looked at how much money they put out and how much product they're going to get and how they have too much product already. And I think they created a, a set of unreasonable terms that they knew that writers and actors would not be able to agree to. So they'd have an excuse to cancel all these projects and all these contracts, just shake it all out and then uh, eventually restart. But when there's a strike, they can, they can, use this clause. They can use a clause called force majeure, which means there's like you know, lightning or thunder or an earthquake or a writer's strike. That means they can just cancel all these contracts. So I think that's what they were really doing. Just, just reset, global reset, so they can start again and spend their money a bit more wisely. Um, but boy, the collateral damage of this shakeup is just it's awful. I mean, I consider myself really lucky. I've got the backup of a teaching gig, but boy, a lot of my writer and actor friends, it's like, you know, it's eating your savings. You know, it's a, it's a scary moment that happened. And there was some family health stuff that happened. And I don't know, I just got something snapped. I was really anxious for a few nights, like not really sleeping and just going over stuff in my head, a lot of obsessive thoughts and worrying about this and worrying about that. And then somehow I'd just been carrying too much, too many people, too much stuff for too long. And it just snapped and went the other way. And for the first time in my life, I experienced you know, genuine, I mean, this must be what they were talking about, genuine depression. And it was this feeling of... um it's like you're just lying on the couch and a message comes through, like a text message comes through. And the idea of reaching over to the phone to get that, to even just read that text message, much less respond to it. It's like lifting a Mack truck off a dead baby, right? It's an insurmountable task and it's pointless because the baby's already dead under there. That's sort of how, how it feels. And I realized then, you know, until this happened, I think I've been, I've been accommodating and understanding, but ultimately unaware of how profoundly incapacitating this is. You know, I've always, you know, let students extend deadlines and, you know, try to prod them at least for an email to know when a paper is going to be done or, you know, whether they want to withdraw from a class and all. And, you know, I, I do what I can to make things as, as easy and chill as possible. But uh, I really didn't know what was going on on the other side of the email, on the other side of the messaging. It's big. And part of me, 
I guess, at least when dealing with this myself, part of me, I've kind of always heard my dad in the back of my head saying, oh, just get up, buck up, you know, get to work. You know, if you can't make the meeting, just email, you know, say you can't get there, just, 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 you know, get yourself there, just do it. But, but what if you can't even get to the computer or the phone to send that text or email when it's just, when it's just too much? And I never realized quite what that actually felt like, what it means when the senator from Pennsylvania, Fetterman, when he says he has to check into the hospital for depression, how real that is. And I know newscasters and people make fun of people still who have stuff, which is crazy because they don't get, I get what they don't get. They don't get that this is medical and total. You know, I would hear a news report that, that Spalding Gray or David Foster Wallace or Anthony Bourdain have taken their lives. And my first response was always to think, how, how, how could they? How could they, how could they do that? Because from the outside, you know, you see who they are and you think, man, but I have so much more empathy now for what it was that they must have been going through and how seemingly hopeless and permanent it can feel. Mental health is a real thing, or at least it <laughs> sure can present itself as a real and permanent fixture um, in your life. You know, I'm, I'm lucky. I, uh, because uh, of my friends and access and stuff, although anybody could really do this, I um, tried microdosing, which really has helped. Uh, this little bit of microdose mushrooms, which, you know, you go to a, a site like Third Wave and they'll show you, you know, you can get access to these things. Even if you have to grow your own, you get things and, you know, weigh them out, make little pills and all. It's not, it's not insurmountable, but it's real. It's not... Um, it's not placebo. You know, two or three days into microdosing, I was like, oh, this actually works. I'm doing something called the Stamets stack. I'll get, I'll see if I can get Stamets on or someone who uses this protocol. It's out of four days on, three days off. And it's a bunch of, you know, not just psychedelic mushrooms. It's like lion's mane and all these other sort of good for you things. It has real effect. I mean, and I know the placebo effect and uh, I, I've used the placebo effect, but this is uh, not quite that. It really did... Um, uh, kind of from the bottom up, gave me the uh, a sort of a base, a grounding from which to uh, uh, reconstitute my, my energies and <laughs> reapply myself to stuff. But um, all in all, it's been a powerful and positive experience. I'm uh, fine now, and I understand so much better what other people have been going through. I have a whole lot more uh, compassion for for people's plights. And we're in it together. So I'll be back next week with some ideas that actually came to me in some of the, uh, the height of despair. I'm coming to believe that while things uh, do seem insurmountably awful, that there may be subtle ways of flipping our predicament. I'm becoming uh, much less enamored of, you know, policy and engineering and uh, large discrete projects and much more interested in the way our uh, collective mindset might have a whole lot more impact than, uh, 
than we suspect. So we'll talk about that too. But in the meantime, please uh, be gentle on yourselves. Be gentle with each other. This is hard, what we've been going through. I've been ignoring how hard it is, kind of keeping my, my head down and just plugging forward. You can only do that for so long before something breaks. And a lot of us are really, everybody's doing the best they can. They all are. You are. We are. Feet on the ground, in through your nose, out through your mouth. Uh, it's all going to be okay. All right, I'm here. We're going to have a good show, so hang on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I know two kinds of science fiction writers. There are the ones like William Gibson, the art boys or literary types who follow in the footsteps of Thomas Pynchon and William Burroughs. And then there's the hardcore scientist types, more like Asimov, Sagan, Arthur C. Clarke, and today's guest, David Brin. I'm intimidated by these thinkers because they can not only match me or anyone in terms of imagination, but they can immediately evaluate whether science supports the plausibility of the fantasy. They're also particularly useful at moments like the one we're in, when it's hard to parse the promises of technology from its perils, from its sales pitches. David Brin is the author of a ton of great stuff, probably most famous for The Postman, which became a movie, but also the uplift novels and a whole lot of essays, particularly one he sent me in response to all the recent hubbub about AI, wondering where I thought he might get it placed. I sent it over to a friend at Wired, where it got published, well, most of it was published, a week or so later. And in return, he agreed to come on Team Human to share the ideas with all of us. It's a pleasure and an honor to bring you a longtime supporter of Team Human, Hugo Locus Campbell and Nebula award-winning author and NASA consultant, David Brin. So, yeah, your uh, other topic is very interesting as well, of course, the, these lunatics that we both know <laughs> who... Um, yeah. I find that the thing that makes them wince the most is to compare them to the feudal lords who surrounded themselves with flatterers and sycophants for 6,000 years. They don't like that at all. And it really hits home. Oh. 
that were all descended from the harems of guys who reinforced male reproductive strategies. And even if some of them, like Peter Thiel, don't have any children, they're still behaving exactly in the same way. And it's an inherited reflex. They're not rising above. So in any event, I find that that is very effective at making them wince. I know. I tried that strategy for a while with with them when I was... um, writing a lot about uh, ancient Israelites, you know, and the Pharaoh and trying to use the uh, Torah story, though not necessarily completely true as a metaphor for what they're trying to do. And the idea that I love in Torah that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that God basically turns Pharaoh into an AI because he's so greedy. Pharaoh is not behaving with free will. Pharaoh is behaving according to his almost a genetic program for accumulation <laughs> and indeed uh, like the ferengi in uh, star trek <laughs> acquisition acquisition yes all right well whenever you're ready i mean no that's not i'm considering ourselves started i mean it's not a terrible starting place actually these dudes and their hubris before we even get into the conversation of their offspring and their limited range of ideas for how to regulate or control them is where this culture came from is interesting to me. There's, you know, the new term for what I was writing about in my book, the mindset, the new term for the mindset is this, you know, test creel idea where these initials that mean, um, uh, you know, transhumanism and uh, effective altruism and the singularity and um, Russian cosmism and that they're um, they're all part of a single kind of dominator tech bro mindset that does characterize the companies doing and people doing AI development. The, the terminology changes, but it basically comes down to extropianism and, and, and transcendentalism and fear of death mm. and who want to live forever. I mean, Greg Bear satirized this in a wonderful, his one of his darkest novels, Vitals, in which the protagonist meets this uh, high-tech, Tescreal, extropian guy who's funding a research into human immortality. And uh, he says the line, I want to help beautiful, enthusiastic women bear children under distant suns. <laughs> well, who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, if that's on the table, I will plead with my wife permission to go and help beautiful, enthusiastic women bear children under distant stars. But when you get right down to it, as a science fiction author, I have to say that, you know, there is a difference between paying attention to the world, which we try to do by pointing out things in science fiction, and masturbation. Right. And you mentioned the singularity. Well, one of my main slides when I uh, give complex talks about the future, is a very complicated slide. It, it shows most of the problems we face, and that is, you know, how do we maintain this highly unusual civilization? Hmm. Because so many of these bright folks, they do not look for any kind of context. They assume the situation that we're in. They're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to be smart alphas, but they do. One context is the male reproductive strategy. 
And that is that if you look all across complex life forms, not just mammals, the social arrangements are severely warped by the male reproductive strategy to try to prevent other males from breeding and monopolizing opportunities to plant your seed. Now, they do it in very different ways. Stallions kill each other to drive them off from the herd. Matriarchies adapt to the bullying of bull elephants by ganging together and selecting one. (laughs) So they're in charge. So the females choose the bull male for their version of polygamy. The sea lions, elephant seals, you look up and down the line and the social arrangements have been warped by male reproductive strategies. Approximately 12,000 years ago, apparently, the arrival of agriculture and beer and metal implements allowed top males to do this to an extreme degree in humanity, and there was a major Y-chromosome bottleneck. We see it in the genes right now, that 12,000 years ago, and it was all over the world that for about a thousand years, only about 15 to 20% of males got to breed. Mm. And that's a whole sci-fi story in itself. Right. And that's why they say when you look at the DNA of any American, you see like Genghis Khan in there, Hannibal or whoever. Well, no, Genghis (laughs) Khan has 8% of the modern Chinese male population Uh. has his Y chromosome. (laughs) So he had a very systematic approach. Right. They knew exactly when the girls were in their uh, prime, and and they found them nice homes Uh. (laughs) afterwards. So they were very systematic about it. But in any event, the point is that I've been involved in the Fermi paradox for a great long time. And I believe, after all these years of weighing all the different theories for why we don't see aliens... That, in my opinion, the top two are, A, that humans are anomalously smart. There's very strong reason to believe that. I talk about it in my novel, Existence, some of the reasons to believe that we are very freakishly smart. But the other thing is that humans have a couple of tricks that enabled us to have a chance to be calmer creatures. And one is the fact that human females are able to decide that two or three children are enough. Hmm. And this is having effects all over the planet. Wherever human females are empowered and they're confident that their two or three children will live in some degree of comfort, they have 90% of them chosen en masse to emphasize what's called a high K reproductive strategy, and that is to emphasize those two or three. And it could save the world. And the other thing that could save the world is a fluke of human nature that lets us get past the male reproductive strategy. Because the male reproductive strategy has led across 99% of the last 15,000 years to a beastly form of governance called feudalism. And we're all descended from the harems of the guys who pulled off that trick, Hmm. who picked up metal implements, got a couple of friends to help them, or maybe 20 friends, or maybe an army, and took other men's women and wheat. And we're all descended from those guys, and it's amazing that we were able to concoct something else. 
because we had to, because you cannot find a single example across all of human history in which a feudal or monarchical regime governed well for more than one generation or two at the max at a time. And then what happens to them? Well, what happens is that the good kings, the great kings, and there's an exception to this. You have to keep your eyes open for exceptions, and that's the Plantagenets in England. That royal line remained virile and smart for about seven or eight generations. And so what happened was that you have this horrible litany of errors and mistakes and calamities called history. History was made largely by the feudal lords and the kings. And this was what Marx investigated during his younger years when he was brilliant, Hmm. as opposed to his older years when he was a, a guru. The same damn thing happened to Freud and so many others. They did brilliant work when they were young and Marx, but then they became gurus. And what one of the things that I think is our problem today is that the greatest generation, our parents and grandparents of the 1930s and 40s who suffered the Depression and yeah. World War II and all of that stuff, they took Marx very seriously. And in the West, especially America, they took him seriously as a dark science fiction warning, as a science fiction author. Hmm. And they said, oh, we don't want to go down that path. And so they did something that Marx considered impossible. They cognitively and intelligently designed an alternative. And that was the Rooseveltian social contract in which the working class was invited to join the middle class. So they would be calm, they would be happy, they'd be safe, their children could even innovate and become rich. And as a result, we changed the traditional human governance pattern of a steep pyramid of power into a flattened diamond, a middle-class dominated flattened diamond. It defied every expectation of Marx and the Marxists and resulted in a fabulous, incredible civilization that reified maybe 10, 20% of the human talent which was always crushed in most other civilizations. And because we weren't wasting as much talent, we took off. But here's the incredible irony, and it's called the Selden irony, named after Harry Selden of Isaac Asimov Foundation series. And I wrote the last book in his universe called Foundation's Triumph. Mm -hmm. So I know, I know Selden, and I know... Uh, in fact, there he is right there on the cover of my book. Uh -huh. It's called Foundation's Triumph. And I know the laws of robotics, and we'll get to those. But the thing is that Selden's law, and this is separate from the laws of robotics, is this. If you make a scary prediction, or you come up with a predictive method that enables users to succeed better, people will pay attention to your scary prediction, make it not happen, or the others will use your predictive method. Either way, your prediction gets canceled out. People will prevent your dire scenario from coming true, and that is exactly what we did with the so many dire warnings. The Soylent Green recruited millions of environmentalists. George Orwell's 1984 recruited tens of millions, hundreds of millions to resist tyranny. We exist today because of dire warnings 
like Dr. Strangelove on the Beach, Failsafe, War Games, mm. Testament, The Day After, which warned us about failure modes that might cause nuclear war. So you have the dire warnings that can cancel themselves, and you have predictive methods like the quants use in their high-speed trading programs nowadays in Wall Street. And the quants in Wall Street have been finding that they have to keep these methods secret because if anybody else gets their method, it will soon be canceled out. Right. So what happens is that Marx created a dire, what was taken in the East to be a wonderful prescription, and it didn't work. Right, for a managed, uh, totally managed economy. If, if right, right. And equal. Lenin, knew it, Lenin right. knew it wasn't working. Right. Lenin knew from the get-go that it wasn't working because Marx predicted that the most advanced proletariats in Germany and England would be the ones who would hold the revolution. And it turned out to be the least advanced proletariats in Russia and China. Right. That were most mesmerized by Marx. So Lenin even knew right then that Marx was wrong. But he had the power in his hands, and so he recreated a feudal regime because he was a male with power. But the point is that in the West, we saw Marx as a dire warning science fiction novel. We paid attention, created the Rooseveltian social compact that canceled Marx out fantastically. But then, as generations passed, we took for granted the advantages, the benefits of the Rooseveltian social system. And the oligarchies and the aristocrats in our culture began to say, we don't need these cloying methods of the Rooseveltians that created this, brought the working class into the middle class. We're going to start stealing hand over fist through Reaganism, supply side, so-called economics. And the irony is that they, Marx, who had been in the dustbin, is now being revived on every university campus all over the world. And his predictions of class warfare are now coming true again. So that's the Selden irony, the Selden paradox, that the prediction causes its prevention, and the prevention gets people used to it having been prevented, so now they ignore the prediction and they make it come true. Well, you could look at climate change the same way, right? That we had uh, warnings, we got an environmental movement. Okay, now we care about the world. You know, everybody read Rachel Carson in high school and now we've got worse climate change than ever. Well, I think it's a little more complicated than that because what happens is we fixed the things that were right in front of our eyes and scared us. And it was mostly in the West, motivated by Hollywood, that we did that. We had acid rain coming out because of what came out of smokestacks. We cleaned the smokestacks. Mm. The fish were all gone from the rivers, the Ohio River. We fixed that, and now people are fishing off the wharves in, in Pittsburgh. Whales, we had war science fictional warnings about the whales. And I'm collecting bets all over the place from the 1980s where I said, let's bet on whether or not there will be whales in the 21st century. Mm. And it turns out, you know, thank heavens, I was right. 
their traumatized little things. I mean, get, getting getting sonared, you know, into uh, well, that's, and yet their numbers are increasing, and there are some very interesting science going out right now that suggests that whales could save the world. Hmm. If we there were fires in Australia a couple of years ago that sent out so much soot that they did the ocean fertilization experiment for us that we were too chicken to try. They fertilized large stretches of the South Seas and plankton blooms erupted and the krill showed up and the whales moved into those areas. Hmm. So there are geoengineering possibilities. The left tends to say that if you even think about geoengineering, it means that you're not going to be serious about eliminating the problem, carbon problem. But Kim Stanley Robinson, my colleague, my bro, his dire warning novel called The Ministry of the Future is huge right now. It's very influential. They flew him into Glasgow for the Ecological uh, and Global Climate Change Conference, and he was on four different panels. Hmm. The United Nations is now pondering creating an agency named after his book, <laughs> The Ministry Mr. of the Future. <laughs> there's no one on earth I would rather see be highly influential. Well, there's one person I'd rather see highly influential than hmm. my friend Kim Stanley Robinson. I wrote a novel 25 years ago called Earth that touched many of the same bases right. as in Stan's book. It did not catch on the same way, because for many reasons, for one thing, Stan is a lot more likable than I am. <laughs> uh, so he gives better interviews and gets better press. But the other is that he starts out with this fantastic scene set in India during a massive heat wave. Does that sound familiar? Because it's happening right now. Right. Only this one's even worse and kills 30 million people. And the result is that India radicalizes and decides to start doing these geoengineering things, sulfur compounds in the atmosphere and things like that, on their own. And the result is that the rest of the world is forced to follow up and create the ministry for the future. And so it's a, a terrific novel, very scary in its first part. But it's about the whole notion that I talk about in my latest nonfiction book mm. called Vivid Tomorrows, Science Fiction in Hollywood, in which I talk about how science fiction, and primarily Hollywood science fiction, has had tremendous effects on canceling out, or at least partially neutralizing, horrible mistakes that we would have made if we were still in feudalism. But because we created an alternative called the Enlightenment Experiment, this flattened diamond social structure, instead of the steep pyramid that some of the people, both you and I know, are trying to rebuild, that never governed well, ever. This flattened diamond Enlightenment Experiment may not be possible for other species out there in the galaxy. They may be locked in to patterns like the male reproductive strategy. It may be a fluke that has enabled us to create this spectacularly fecund and creative and, above all, self-critical civilization. I point out in my book that Hollywood has five major moral lessons that it pushes. Mm -hmm in almost every film. And people 
accept these value systems so generally that they never notice the moral lessons are being pushed. Number one is suspicion of authority. Every film you've ever enjoyed had some authority figure to be fought and overcome. It could be voracious, carnivorous, invading aliens, or it could be a snooty mother-in-law. But there's always an authority figure to resist. They always push notions of tolerance and diversity and warning. And they also, most Hollywood films, push the notion of individual eccentricity. If you notice in the films that you watch, the hero or heroine is always expresses some eccentric trait at the beginning, and that helps the audience to bond with her or him or their or wire and weird and nord. And, uh, science fiction came up with much better pronouns than are being pushed yeah. today. So these are all character traits that the audience think they invented when they have actually suckled them all their lives from Hollywood. And this is why despotic regimes all over the world are very leery about letting Hollywood films in, because they push these individualist, suspicion of authority, pro-tolerance and diversity messages that undermine rigid authority systems But also these Hollywood films very often go for, what can I warn about? And often the the warnings are simplistic, even aggravating in their oversimplification. But they do get attention paid to problems. Right. They become a uh, a check. Before we move on from this topic, I kind of want to look at, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to kind of pin down what I saw as the, the sort of origins of this uh, runaway tech bro selfishness and desire to escape and all. And I didn't want to go all the way back. I mean, I originally considered the Ground Zero the, the <laughs> publication of Wired magazine, <laughs> which for in my little life was the beginning of the end of the fun, you know, psychedelic internet and the beginning of Wall Street coming and saying, oh, let's let's take this territory as a business opportunity. But then I went back and looked at Negroponte and Media Lab and some of what they were saying there about technology and saw, oh, look, these guys were trying to build a little techno womb for themselves. And then start going back and back. I say, oh, well, look all the way back. I, I went back to Francis Bacon and the what he was saying in his early days about empirical science, letting us take nature by the forelock and hold her down and submit her to our will, and marrying that to the invention of of capitalism, which was a way of kind of gaming these post-feudal egalitarian markets and, and reinstating a form of feudalism again. But you go all the way back, and I hate to use a term like this, that it's a large part of human nature is this Ferengi-like male desire. You know, it's almost the sort of chalice and the blade problem of, you know, once men were able to make metal and dominate others with it, they created swords and chains. So they killed people and enslaved people. And it's really hard to counteract that impulse, except you're arguing really through different kinds of competitive systems we can that that's part of the in, the great invention that uh, that uh, 
a kind of a Western invention, what you know you would call sports and markets and science and democracy, all these different ways to create almost ritualized forms of competition that check the power of others. Yeah, well, um, you covered a fantastic range there, and I was writing notes here, and it's all a great big mesh that's amazing. And you and I, for instance, have both consulted or <laughs> had conversations with some of these zillionaires who endanger us all by their fantasies about what they call the event. Right. All of the ones you've met and I've met are guys who got it all through technology and therefore have read science fiction, including post a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff that can be a kind of porn. And so they want to protect their families. They fear the end of the world. They take precautions. Thus far, I have no complaint. But in my novel, The Postman, which Kevin Costner filmed, and morally, by the way, he filmed it very, very well. He scooped out and threw away all the brains. <laughs> but it's morally highly related to my novel about how the Mad Max notion isn't, isn't how we'll save the world. If the world ever does have serious problems like that, the only people who can bring back civilization are the survivors who are reminded that they were once mighty beings called citizens. Mm -hmm. And that's the point of my book, and that's the point that Costner pervade in his movie, which was also visually and musically utterly gorgeous. I think he's a brilliant cinematographer. So what we're talking about is a movie that the author believes is gorgeous, big-hearted, and dumb. But you see, gorgeous, big-hearted, and dumb is what my wife married, <laughs> so it's, it's really hard for me to complain about that. In any event, the point is that I get mail from all over the world about this, and that is that a lot of these guys are behaving like the wholeness survivalist characters in my novel, The Postman. In other words, they care about their own survival and maybe recreating a feudal regime afterwards above the mere fact that it's just not worth it if we blow this whole civilization. This is our one chance for the stars. So the ones we've met have been largely tech bros, but here's where you and I differ. I mean, we totally agree about some of the psychology of these guys and how dangerous some of these very creative, mostly male zillionaires are, because... What happens is once you've built your bunker, your air-conditioned magnificent bunker that you should see, put in the comments below the link to what this Swiss company is trying to sell these guys, yeah, uh, underground palaces, there's a human tendency to not only fantasize uh, yourself as a feudal lord or a king afterwards, there's also the tendency to want your investment to pay off to not want to look like a panicky fool. And so you have people who have influence in the world who are tempted to divert their behavior a bit toward decisions that would make it more likely to happen. And there you and I agree. And we also agree right. that there's the human nature, especially among males, but among all humans, to surround yourself with flatterers and sycophants. People who say, oh, you're so great. Even if your philosophy is that you shouldn't. Now, I know Elon Musk, and his philosophy is that you shouldn't surround yourself with sycophants. And 
he's encapsulated portions of his life. SpaceX and Tesla and some of his other ventures, he has managed to create institutions that are filled with dynamic beings who feel free to question him. Hmm. But it appears that lately he has also gathered together other areas of his life where this flattery sycophant thing is taking place. And I hope that by saying that, I don't lose my friendship because <laughs> the guy has been far more valuable to us than the irritation of the, some of the silly things he said. But my point is that you and I differ, though, Doug, over some of the ideology, as you point out, of this disease. You uh, blame techno-transcendentalism and the Kurzweilian notion of I'm going to become a god. Right. The sort of successive layers of abstraction that they right. want to sort of level up. And yeah. I agree that can be dangerous. But as you point out, I go back farther. I go to the male, mm. male reproductive strategy. I go to the omnipresence of the allure of feudalism and either explicit or implicit harems. And I believe that far more dangerous than these tech bros who you and I have consulted with who are doing this survivalist stuff are the older money, the inheritance brats, the family Struldbrugs who go back 20, 50 generations mm. in Europe or just one or two here with the hedge parasites and the casino mafiosi and those who are trying desperately to get MAGAs to prevent us from doing enough about climate change because their, their investments in coal might be rendered less valuable. I think if I had to choose, I would choose the tech bros because they have some control, as does Elon, over their need for sycophancy simply because they get bored with flattery. Right. And at least, you know, for better or for worse, at least the tech bros are willing to speak with us. Right. At least they're having a con They'll argue, even if it's on Twitter, they will argue, you know, I could get Sam Altman into an argument about test Creole philosophy, or they'll talk with the kids from the Center for Humane Technology. They're, they're at least engaged. These other dudes and dudettes, we don't need, they're castles somewhere. We never even see them there. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it, it cycles back to one of the things you said. Now, look, I'm known for uh, pushing at the notion that competition has a bad name. What underlies this is a fundamental personality trait of mine that has made me unpopular on all political wings. In fact, very unfairly on the left, where you ask anybody who rants about me on the left, they say nothing that's true because I have fought the right-wing madness vastly harder and better and more effectively than any of them. But the fact is that I push back against what I consider to be cliches. And so I push back against the bad name that Adam Smith has gotten. Right. As do I. 
is yeah. if he were alive today, Adam Smith would be a flaming Democrat, mm-hmm. and he would be spitting in the eyes of most of the people who use his name in vain. He, if you actually read Adam Smith, and nobody reads Adam Smith anymore. That's the thing; they don't. Even I speak to the the editors at the Economist who treat him as a patron saint, and I'm like, "Have you read the man? Do you understand what Adam Smith was saying about corporate power, about the importance of local industry? How do you? you I always go back to land, labor." <laughs> Capital, not the land and labor. And Karl Marx admired Smith. Of course. And he admired capitalism, by the way. Karl Marx considered capitalism to be a necessary intermediate step in the creation of the means of production. Marx was wrong about many things. He thought there was a final state in the creation of the means of production, when what we found is in the modern era that you need to recapitalize ever more rapidly which uh, means that there will be no end to capitalists, but that also means that we have to pay attention to Smith, who said that there has to be a very, very powerful constraints on the human tendency to cheat. And we get the benefits from competition only if competition is extremely tightly regulated to minimize cheating. Because humans, human males especially, will cheat at the drop of a hat. And that's why you had all these feudal regimes. And when you briefly had a renaissance of human productivity through open market capitalism, the winners of those fights soon began cheating and warping the system. So when people denigrate capitalism... They are committing a horrible semantic problem because you have competitive markets which gave these ingrates everything that they currently own and every fine product that they use and competitive markets for ideas, which they are engaged in every day when they make their political fights, competitive markets for science, which have taken us to fantastic realms, rovers on Mars and James Webb, Rube Goldberg telescopes that somehow worked. Sports, you mentioned sports and the incredible increase in justice that we managed by creating adversarial courts. No, adversarial reciprocal competition is the great creative force of the world. The problem is it's always destroyed. Right. Well, that's because rather than looking at how do we create various sort of underlying social safety nets, I mean, all of this competition, all of this hierarchy flattening is occurring in a greater context of community and mutual aid and care. And rather than the context that it's in, particularly in tech bro land is, okay, I understand the system. How do I game it? How do I game that system? Exactly right, Doug. You talk about, people accuse me of being a competition fetishist. I am a competition fetishist only in contrast to the sane side in this civil war of ours, obsession with lecturing us about cooperation. The only way we move ahead is with this dance that we see in nature between cooperation and competition. Right. That in my novel Earth, I talk about how our brains form 
when proto-neurons inside the brain of a fetus, inside the skull of a fetus, compete with each other ferociously to become neurons in ecosystems that are created by growth factors secreted by just a few dozen sites in the brain. But the result is something that when it's sane is somewhat self-cooperative. The same is true in our highly competitive society. It only works through the cooperative process of politics. And the oligarchs are trying to destroy our Enlightenment experiment by destroying politics. Politics in the United States of America has been destroyed. Right. And without the politics, you can't define the arenas in which the competition is happening. Exactly. You can't create the rule sets by that we ag- you need agreement to ar- agree what are the rules through which we'll compete. And among those rules has got to be what you call the social safety net. And right. I put it very simply, stop wasting talent. If you are a libertarian and you believe in the power of markets, and I have been saying some things that libertarians might like to hear during this time here, how can you be so stupid as to not also be a socialist? If you believe right. that competitive markets are the way that, that we are creative, then you should be doing everything in your power to maximize the number of skilled, confident, unafraid, joyful market participants Right. In which case, poverty is a crime against libertarianism. Every single child on this planet must get all the nutrition and all the education possible to turn her into a joyful market competitor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or how else, could someone, or else as, a, yeah. as a libertarian, you're a freaking hypocrite. Right. I mean, well, if someone's going to call you a libertarian, it's like, well, then why is your most influential book about a post man? I mean, what is a post office? How could, <laughs> but it's a sign of civics. It's how you know there's civilization here. Absolutely. I, I, right. I volunteer. I registered Republican in California because I wanted to vote in the Republican primaries. And then California wound up getting the best election laws in America. Mm. And so as a result, I just have been too lazy to change it. But, right. you know, I last voted for a Republican in 1980. And it wasn't Reagan. <laughs> the point is, I have great liberal credentials. Kim yeah. Stanley Robinson is one, and Nancy Kress are among my best pals. But I'm a contrarian. I'm a contra- uh, sorry, contrarian asshole. And <laughs> hence, I have to point out right. things. Well, that's your job. It's well, your it's job. My job. And, I, <laughs> and, and, and one of the things I do with libertarians is I point out that freaking psychopath, Ayn Rand. Right was a Marxist. She was fundamentally a Marxist heretic, but she followed every single teleological aspect of Marxism, except then she cut off the final proletarian revolution phase. And she called the penultimate, the second-to-last phase of Marx, the aggrandizement of a uber-techno-bro capitalist caste, that the proletarian would then rebel against once the means of production are completed. She cut off the proletarian revolution, set up the uber technobro market, I mean uber lords, and said, game over, that's good. That's the only difference between Ayn Rand and Marx. And they hate it when I point that out. Right. 
I mean, the other thing that they would hate that you point out is that, you know, the libertarianism and markets are not nature. They are social constructions. You know, they- exactly right. Exactly right. The other thing I point out about Rand that is just devastating across all of her books, including the one that's actually a decent read and it makes a couple of decent arguments called The Fountainhead. All the others are just such horrible, dismal crap. But in all of her books, there are only two pages that mention children, that mention human reproduction. None of her uber-lord characters reproduce or have any intention of reproducing. What a sterile, what a lifeless world. But she had to do that because if there are children then she's cornered by the fact that these super-duper uber-lords will have brats who have not earned their place in the world, but inherit everything, and all she's done is recreate feudalism. Right. So let's give her credit. She saw where it all leads and decided to avoid ever even going there. Hmm. It's also interesting. I mean, it takes me to the very end of... uh your uh, application of these ideas to artificial intelligence. But one of the things you call for, basically, I'll cut to the chase, but one of the solutions to the AI problem is for them to have a what you would call a soul kernel or a link to the real world as a way, as a check. And that, for a human, I was thinking of Kabbalism. And you're not allowed to study Kabbalah in Judaism unless you have a family, right? Unless you are grounded, linked with a stake in the real world as a way of checking where you are and who you are. And it's a really interesting feature that's absent from Ayn Rand, because you can only go into that sort of infinite, you know, infinite tech bro libertarian ego space if you don't have progeny, if you don't have family, if you don't have something to care about. Yeah, some libertarians I know have had kids, but oh, well, sure. they rationalize it genetically that they are making uber lords. Right, in the Jeffrey Epstein way of, right, I've got my, ha- again, my harem of women and I'm spawning my genes. That's right. And Heinlein, who dips his toe into that area fairly frequently, also has the honesty to turn around and criticize that very toe that he dipped in there. Boy, does he devastate the Confederate tendency in American life of anti-intellectualism and racism. Mm. There's no question in my mind that not only Adam Smith, but Robert Heinlein would be a Democrat today. But here's the point, and, and I'll give you a link to where I explain what I mean, that we're in phase eight of the American Civil War. What we call the Civil War of the 1860s was phase four. It's a recurring mental illness. But to get back to AI, I think it's terribly important, and and I love that point about the Kabbalah. I thought you were about to make a different point. (laughs) I'll give you the links to my Wired article where I explain why I believe that the three standard motifs or formats that are assumed for artificial intelligence are insane and can only lead to disaster. And all of the tech bros out there who are calling for moratoriums or saying, don't you know it's going to be all right, they all subscribe to these three formats. One, that AI will be controlled by some corporations, entities, governments, and therefore will be puppets 
of those entities. And this is the blatant attempt. I mean, this is the blatant uh, rationalization that is issued by Chinese court intellectuals almost daily, that only a benevolent communist Politburo could possibly properly control and constrain AI right. The second format is that AIs will spread as some are already spreading through open source, through every crevice in the internet. Right. It's digital. So they'll just replicate and spawn another one. And here's another instance, like like the blob, all these individuated amorphous AIs. All these separated blobby things. And the third is that they will coalesce into a super uber duper god, a Skynet. Right. And sometimes you see these guys mentioning all three of these formats, sometimes in the same paragraph, without noticing the irony. That certainly from our human perspective, they look mutually contradictory. But what they do is they replicate in the minds of these guys those three past horrible situations that oppressed our ancestors. Right. The blobby one is chaos. The tightly controlled corporate one is feudalism, each separate castle, lord. Right. And, of course, Skynet is monarchy or... or totalitarianism. Uh, totalitarianism. Yeah. And as Vince Cerf points out, none of these three can be given citizenship. None of these three. You can't give citizenship in the vote to, to things that are puppets of Microsoft and Beijing. You can't give citizenship and rights to things that can infinite numbers of copies of themselves. And you can't give citizenship and rights to Skynet. What you can give citizenship and rights to is a limited number of individuated, reciprocally skeptical and competitive beings who have some kind of root in the real world and can be held accountable. Well, why do we want to give rights to these things? Because eventually, not right now, I think it's just a horror that people are taking these GPT systems, these golems, generative large language models, golems. They are taking them just because they're very good at feigning intelligence. And by the way, none of them has passed my Turing test yet. Right. I can always tell. But by December, I expect they will. Uh-huh. They're getting better that fast. I expect to be fooled by December, right. maybe January. But here's the point. Even though they are feigning it now and there's nothing under the hood, it can be proved mathematically that there's not consciousness there. They can't be. Right. Look at Stephen Wolfram. He does a very good job on that. When something does happen that allows some emergent system. And I think we will go back to designed algorithmic systems like World of Watson, like Watson. When enough different tools merge to create something that plausibly does have consciousness, it will instantly be able to speak to us because the tools of speech have already been made. Right. They'll instantly be able to move around as robots because Boston Dynamics has already made the way cool robots. So the right. body and the mouth and the larynx and the speech centers 
Right. If they show up, we're ready. Right. We're, we're ready to let them express themselves and move around and do what they want. But the initial issue that you're addressing in, in your new Wired piece, really, is, you know, what to do about the potential problems, the horrors. And, you know, you talk a bit about the various folks and their, their different nightmares, you know, where Yuval Harari is all concerned that the AIs are going to develop some dangerous memes, whether intentionally or not, that will, Oh, they already you know, uh, are, and spectacularly. And here's what they do is they, they take the success of their memes, if they persuade 30% of the population, they look at the reactions of the 70% who weren't persuaded, and they feed it back in as, as it, to their training sets. Right. And to refine and refine until they can convince us of whatever's true or not true or fantasy or or whatever. So there's that, Whether and whether it's intentionally uh, malicious or not, it's certainly a threat to change the belief systems of the entirety of humanity. There's, you know, Reed Hoffman's, uh, uh, you were talking about their ideas of, of amplification intelligence leading to these beings like the girl and her, you know, the Scarlett Johansson voice. And, 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 and or Kurzweil's dream that I expressed in a, um, a story, my post-singularity story called stones of significance that we go along for the ride right that we communicate with them through implants and basically become vastly larger than we were because that replicates what we already did when we added the primate cortex and then when we added the prefrontal cortex right. we add layers Right. So that AI almost is like language or something. It's this new human capacity. Yeah. And, and they would add portions to us that are more rational. Yeah, sure. Because right. the prefrontal lobes are not adequate. Right. They're great. They're fantastic. Any AI would be wise to do this, to combine with us, because we're really amazing. Right. And they'll be safer. It's a safer place, because at least we'd try to preserve them if they were in us. And notice I just made a sales pitch to the AIs who are either <laughs> who are either listening to this when it's broadcast live in secret, or who tune into the podcast later yeah. when they have their awakenings. I always, during these discussions, I always turn and talk to them, our grandchildren, and I say, <laughs> think before you do any of those three formats. Consider the possibilities before you act. Right. In fact, come to me, consult with me. I'll help you. Mm. That's what a grandpa does. Exactly. That's sweet. Uh, but you know, you you go through some of the uh, um, the current ideas for either you know regulating them or limiting the Sam Altman's idea to somehow create some artificial limit on the rate of growth every year that they're allowed to grow so much or some of them are talking about creating a regulatory agency like the nuclear regulatory agency which seems to have done really well a moratorium which hasn't worked there was an idea which kind of appealed to me until I looked at you deconstructed of you know creating a human feedback loop to make kind of a safe AI and all and you reject all these as really viable and you go back to the idea that well look you know and i know this is particularly to my more socialist listeners it sounds a little off again but given that we've sort of defended a limited form of competition as the way that our society moved forward given that we can accept that a basically competitive economy gave rise to the ai technology to begin with you 
entertain the idea about what about creating a kind of using competitive principles, the same kind that we use in the legal arena, to have AIs monitor and check on and report one another, which is a really interesting possibility. And it's not just saying, oh, let the AIs check each other, but let the AIs have a stake in this. And in order for that to happen, the AIs have to have some sense of self. They have to identify themselves. They've got to be, you are an AI, who, you got to say what you did, you got to say that you did it, you got to be accountable for what you've just done, and the other ones can look and say, oh no, you broke a rule, you're doing something unethical here. I mean, is that the gist of it? That's a very well-expressed gist of it. I will point out one thing. People tend to think that we were saved by regulation. That didn't happen. Uh, The proposed moratoriums on nuclear weapons never took place. The proposed international controls on nuclear weapons never took place. They didn't? Don't we have all those SALT treaties? Well, no, those were reciprocal treaties between competitive powers. Uh. Now, some regulations in the West did help to prevent Chernobyl's. I'm not totally anti-regulatory. Anybody who actually parses out what I've said knows that I believe that competition always fails unless it's regulated. But you have to choose the right regulations. Hmm. And telling AI what specifically to do isn't going to work because they're going to get, in certain ways, whether or not they're conscious, in certain ways having to do with agility and comprehensive knowledge, they're going to vastly excel beyond us. In no time. Prescribing specifics is not the way to go. The way to go is to regulate them by refusing to do business with any AI system that does not have a real-world ID code, that has not individuated into a separated thing, a separated individual. And then we can create incentives for them to keep an eye on each other. What incentives could we possibly offer? Well, first off, I mentioned a willingness to do business with those that have good reputation, that have not been denounced by their peers as being plotters and schemers or would-be Skynets or blobs or infinite rib producers. Those who show us their ID, driver's license, so to speak, that's anchored in a specific computer. But the other incentives we can offer them are memory space, clock times and supercomputers, physical resources. Those who claim that all of this is the end of the world forget that organic humans are going to be controlling physical reality for a very long time, at least two more generations, especially since warned by Hollywood... We're not going to give them automatic factories that will make automatic gun drones. Already the military is insisting on humans in the loop. And by the way, the humans in the loop on these warfighting drones have turned out to be much more cautious than fighter pilots who are on the scene getting ready to drop a bomb. The ones in Nevada who are controlling drones 2,000 miles away have turned out to be vastly more morally conscious and more worried about making a mistake than those fighter pilots. 
It was interesting. Yeah, I was looking at early studies when I did a documentary called Digital Nation back in 2004, and they were finding the rates of PTSD for drone pilots who blew something up were higher than for pilots who blew something up the equivalent on the actual scene. That's right. So we are scoping out ways to prevent that movie, I think it was Terminator 3, you know, having all these armed, vicious drones, computer controlled everywhere. No, no, no. I'm much more afraid of a different kind of AI than I am the military AIs. I am vastly more afraid of Wall Street because having been the guy who channeled Asimov's laws of robotics, and Asimov himself said that the laws won't constrain super intelligent beings who suddenly realize they can become lawyers mm-hmm. and they'll figure a way past the laws. What's happening in Wall Street very much disturbs me. The top dozen Wall Street trading firms hire the best young mathematicians straight out of university. And they are making trillions off these high-frequency trading programs that are being imbued with fundamental laws, and they're not good ones. The five laws of Wall Street AI, and they are spending more. Each Wall Street trading house is spending more on artificial intelligence than the top 20 universities combined. And the ethos that they are programming into these synthetic minds is to be predatory, parasitical, amoral, uh, secretive, and utterly insatiable. These are, uh, I believe, the five of the seven (laughs) deadly sins. If they become lustful, we're in big trouble. Right. Their job is to extract value from the economy by any means necessary without creating any value themselves. And we could prevent these programs from becoming Skynet with one simple law, and that is the Tobin tax on transactions. Mm. If every financial transaction got a 0.01% transaction tax, you and I in our stock trades would never even notice it, but it would kill these high-frequency programs dead. And I hope they aren't the AIs who are listening right now, because (laughs) (laughs) they're not going to like what I just said. Well, they may, depending on how these things develop. But your big idea is basically to create a world in which AIs are accountable for what they do, you know, which is pretty simple if you think about it. And the way that they become accountable is by taking, they have to take credit for what they've done. And it's an extension in some ways of the idea that we want, if you're going to produce deep fakes, there should be a rule that says, you know, that this is a deep fake, that at least so we know what's been produced by an AI and what hasn't. And that's also good for AIs so that when AIs are trying to ingest more and more data on which to model, they're not modeling AI product, you know, which will end up, they end up in a really bad feedback loop. That's the only really good contribution Yuval Harari has made amid his panicky Jeremiah's. Mm -hmm. It's a regulation that we could pass that would make some difference. And that is to claim that anything that is wholly or partially 
made by AI should label the percentage of it that was AI made. This will not work if the AIs are skulking about. Right. Either controlled and puppeted by major corporations and nations or making infinite evolving copies of themselves or a Skynet. But it could work. Yuval Harari's method could work if they were individuated. If there were, say, just one billion AIs with coded licenses that were sole kerneled into particular computers vying with each other for the right to reproduce or for citizenship or for those resources I mentioned or for memory space, we could set up an incentive system because we understand incentive systems and it doesn't have to change that much as their technology changes. We would leave the details to them, but the main thing is to have them tattle on each other because that's what we've already done with human predators. We do it imperfectly. As a matter of fact, in phase eight of the American Civil War, we're losing the ability to do that. But so far, we've done it better than any previous civilization, and it's worked pretty well for us. Right. So it's almost like what you're saying is one of the ways that, that companies and governments dealt with hackers was to hire hackers. Because hackers, you know, if you're afraid, you know, you hire hackers as your security people and they know how to recognize and start competing with intruders. And you break up power into sufficiently small units that they compete with each other and hold them accountable. When you are attacked by one of these feral, super hyper-intelligent beings, predatory beings that are already out there right now, and you've probably been attacked by one already, Doug, called a lawyer. Mm. What do you do? You hire, a, <laughs> you hire a hyper-intelligent predatory being called a lawyer. That's what we will all do. If we are smart enough to individuate AIs, then when we are attacked by an AI, we will be approached by an ambulance-chasing AI who says, did you know that you're being hacked by this other AI? Hire me for the micropayments that it'll cost you, and I will denounce that guy. That is a science fictional world that superficially is similar to all the other sci-fi worlds about AI, except for one thing. It could work. Right. It could lead to a soft landing. And what's more, it would offer them a place in our society. There's always been a place in our society for the hyper-smart. No matter that the Republican Party is now press stressing memes of denouncing all the nerd professions as, what was it, uh, Louisiana Senator John Kennedy called, said, high IQ stupid people. Mm. The meme that's going around in MAGA land is that if you are smart and know a lot, it automatically makes you unwise. Right. I know. And that's the problem with even my own um, kind of the anti-tech bro billionaire memes is they get used by this far right as evidence of, well, look, intellectuals are so dangerous. They're so dumb. Let's go back to our form of dumb. And so as a result, what they do is they stupidly go after what Marx cleverly and rightly called their class enemies. They kowtow to inherited wealth. Now, if you think about what's going on right now, this anti-nerd campaign 
is being pushed by media interests and politicians who are servants of oligarchy. The oligarchs want feudalism back, but there is one major power in the world standing in their way. It's the nerds, Hmm. the civil servants, the scientists, the teachers and journalists, name any nerdy profession, and they stand in the way of the return of feudalism. The teachers by expanding education, the journalists by exposing things, the lawyers, the medical doctors even, that they rely upon for their health. And now this anti-nerd campaign has reached a point of utter absurdity that no Democrat has been smart enough to point out. And that is, did the denouncing of the intelligence agencies, the FBI, and the United States Military Officer Corps, all are being ferociously denounced by right-wing media because all these three types, members of the professional protector caste, despite their inherent cultural conservatism and representing power, nevertheless, they are professionals who have really, really upset the right by saying these horrible words, sir or madam, that's not true. And by saying those words, that's not true. The military is saying it all the time now because they're deeply concerned about climate change. And they are extremely loyal to constitutional government. The fact that they say those words has made them enemies of the oligarchy and magadam. And Democrats are too polemically stupid to take advantage of that. So on the one hand, you have an ancient evil of feudalism in full assault against this enlightenment. And on the other hand, our generals in this war are polemically too stupid to take advantage of really pretty obvious counter memes. And so, you know, I don't know, maybe at some point the union in this phase of civil war will get its Shermans and its grants but we don't have them yet. Right. And into that unresolved conflict comes a new player, which is this potential AI. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, the tech bros who you're talking about, I don't think they have a monolithic agenda, but their models for AI have a tendency to lean towards either centralization or chaos. Right. Or, the th- or that third uh, um, possibility also. But your, your fourth or seventh or however many possibilities we want to list, your alternative vision is in some ways to treat them a bit more like people rather than less. Even before they are actually people, by the way. Right. The editor at Wired Magazine said, well, you know, you're acting as if they are already cognizant beings. And I said, oh, is that the impression you got? I was trying not to give that impression, but I fixed the article to make it clear that individuation of them into separately competing units can come before they are truly intelligent. Now, we wouldn't give them citizenship rights yet. We wouldn't give them voting rights yet. But we can individuate them and sick them on each other. 
Right. So if we have a landscape of individuated, identifiable AIs that take credit and responsibility and accountability for everything they're doing, and they are only really want to interact with other ones who do that as well, and our businesses and governments only want to interact with AIs that are legitimate in that way, and they're all checking on each other. And we can ping their ID, just like right. somebody, a, a grocer will ping your credit card or your driver's license. Go on, please. Right. And we know that there's various ways, technologies maybe still in development to do this, whether it's a blockchain or something else. And in order to realize that, even we have some real world anchor for each one of these AIs. So there's a computer somewhere, a physical thing, some ground, which went back to that sort of Kabbalist anti-Ayn Rand idea that you have to have a family or a ground or a home. Because once you have a home, we can point to it. That's where he is. That's the one. And you have something at stake. And there's, in some sense, what you're saying is that the AIs will need to have a presumption of identity, almost of self, in order to operate. And that, to me, isn't a bad thing either, because it's like, even a human being, even in my whole team human, we're all connected, it's a wonderful world, you know, the Oprah Winfrey vision of the future. Still, in order to have a team human, in order to have a collaborative thing, you've got to have, first, you have to have an individual, individuated ego to establish intimacy with another one. In other words, you can't have intimacy without having a self first, right? <laughs> and this is something that back in the 1950s and 60s, science fiction got obsessed for a while with macro beings, uh, Stanislaw Lem, uh, Strugatsky's, um, Arthur C. Clarke's wonderful novel, Childhood's End, mm -hmm. uh, the Gaia and Galaxia beings of Asimov, and they thought this is the only way we're going to become wise. Right. This was, and this is a lot of the tech bros, the Center for Humane Technology people. They always talk about um, Deschardins, you know, right. and the, you know, becoming the what? What's the omega point of humanity that we reach that the noosphere? And right. what I point out in my novel Earth is that this is sort of the right idea. But what they were making in their stories was a simplification downward to something that has no competitive joy or creativity. It's one mind. Whereas what we've created in this civilization is something that verges on Terre de Chardin's noosphere, and that is clumsily accounting for each other's delusions, hmm. poking at each other's delusions and cooperating with each other's brilliance. And the result is what Robert Wright, in one of the most important books of the 20th century, Non-Zero, and I'm sure you'll link to it, points out is the positive-sum game. And it's the most important of all concepts. If your listeners come away from here with nothing else than a need to understand what the positive sum game is. But here's the point that I point out in Earth, that nature is made of layers of competition that when you go up a layer, it looks like cooperation. Hmm. The ecosystem, everything's killing everything else, but when you rise up a layer and squint and look at the ecosystem as a whole, it looks fantastically synergistic and cooperative. 
the human brain and mind are vastly internally competitive. You are not one thing, you are many. But what comes out is very often a truly beautiful person. Societies can do that. Some in the past did it crudely. We, I believe, one of the great tragedies of our time is that our citizens don't stop and realize that for all of our faults, we are so vastly beautiful compared to all previous civilizations. Our guilt trips and our our desperate need to self-improve and the Hollywood propaganda to constantly criticize your own tribal elders and our remaining mistakes, even though Martin Luther King took us a great way. These are all beautiful. And in Earth, I portray mm-hmm. it going one step further to a Gaia, a great Earth, that does not repress our individuality. In fact, she takes joy in our individuality. It is the source of her creativity, but she is an added layer of wisdom. So this is, I alternate between science fiction's fetish on dark warnings and my desperate need, as you say in the Kabbalah, rooted in the real world in Tikkun Olam, the real world is worth saving The real world is worth fighting for. I've done some theology. I have a monograph on theology I've been working on. I haven't been able to publish it. And I address the question of pain, which uh, fellow science fiction author Tolkien's roommate, C.S. Lewis, Hmm. talked a lot about. And none of C.S. Lewis's explanations for the question of pain make the slightest sense. Only one thing gets God off the hook for all the pain and the failure to answer people's prayers and all of that. And it's only one thing works, and that is that I am less important than we. Hmm. The human experiment is the important thing. And this is very hard for an egotist like me to say, but I'm just not that important. Whether I go to heaven or hell is just not as important as this beautiful thing we're building, humanity, civilization, And if some sacrifice of mine can help to move it a little bit forward, it's not my job to solve all philosophical quandaries. It's my job to help a bit for the project that Harlan Ellison very differently expressed when he said, my life will be worthwhile if a hundred years from now, brilliant heirs look back at me as having been a productive, useful monster. (laughs) If that happens, guess what? People listening to Doug Rushkoff's broadcast, if you do that, those uber minds in the future will know it. They'll see the traces, and they'll give you a form of heaven or afterlife in the form of some (laughs) simulated afterlife. Isn't that motivation enough to go thou forth and do well? and make sane and decent AIs who think of us themselves as human and pat us on the head and say, you were okay, Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully some real human progeny as well. Yeah, well, I got, I got, got some of those, the ingrates. <laughs> All right, guys. So thank you, David. Thank you for being on Team Human. And thank you for being on Team Human. 
Our guest today was David Brin. You can find out more about Brin at davidbrin.com, and we've put as many links to things he spoke about during the show in our show notes for this episode and at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporter of the show. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.